Now, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 once again. Uh, we're in the middle of a portion of Matthew's gospel that highlights the authority of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 8 and 9, that's going to center around a series of miracles followed by response passages. And chapter 8 opened with three miracles that we covered. And then last week, we looked at the first of those response, pa- uh, response passages. How do the people respond to the ministry of Jesus Christ? He says, uh, it's time to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he gives that command to leave, he's approached by two men. The first one is a scribe, and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And before he responds to the specific uh, request of that scribe, he says, This is what it will look like to follow me. See, to be a scribe, uh, to be a follower of a great teacher meant that the student would also gain some notoriety. If you followed a well-known rabbi, a well-known teacher, a well-thought-of individual, just by being in his circle, you too would have some of that fame, some of that influence brush off on you. Jesus is very, very quick to say, this is not that kind of discipleship. To follow after me is a costly thing. The birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man, the very Son of Man promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, has nowhere to lay his head. To follow after Christ puts you in opposition to a dead and dying world. It puts you at a place where you are constantly called to exert yourself for the good of others. After all, that is what the Master did. He laid aside uh, his glory and his honor that he had had from eternity past, and he took on flesh and he served. And he came even to the point of dying for his people that he would redeem from their sins. And so to follow after the master will mean following in his footsteps of service, of love, of sacrifice, of opposition and questioning and hatred even of the world. And then there's a second man who comes and he's willing to follow. But first he says, let me have permission to go and bury my father. And there's nothing inherently sinful about attending a funeral, and there's certainly nothing sinful about honoring your father and your mother, but Jesus identifies it as something in the life of this man that is preventing his wholehearted following after Christ. And to follow after Christ is an urgent call. It demands all of who you are. Discipleship becomes the lens through which we view everything else. It is not that we are disciples of Christ at times, and then we work at times, and then we play at times, and then we are students at times, and then all of these other things that we tend to segment our lives by. Uh, No, we are disciples of Christ always, first and foremost. And sometimes, as disciples, our particular area of ministry is in the secular workplace. And sometimes it is in the schoolyard, and sometimes it is in our neighborhood, and sometimes it is all these other things. But all of those are areas of discipleship, ways that we follow Christ in whatever specific instance he's called us to. And then we came to the final conclusion that we have to ask and answer, is it worth it? If it's a costly call and an urgent call, is it a call that's worth responding to? And of course, it absolutely is. Uh, The gate is narrow. The way is hard. But that is the way that leads to life and life eternal. That is the way that leads to the king and to his kingdom. And so this week, we move back into demonstrations of the power of the king. And don't worry, we're not going to cover three miracles at a time. Again, these three we'll deal with individually. They're all very, very theologically significant in what they cover here. But for this week, we'll be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. So if you're not there already, find your way there, and I'll read our passage for this morning. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, this is what God's Word says. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, There arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, we come to another demonstration of power. Authority that stretches not simply over the text of the Old Testament. Authority that stretches not just to teaching and not even to physical disease, but authority that stretches over physical creation itself. And God, as we come to a familiar passage, help us to see uh, not something brand new, but help us to see with fresh eyes. Help us to be uh, renewed in our awe and our wonder at who you are. Help us to be renewed in our faith and our confidence of the Savior that we follow. God, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And then through the power of your spirit and the clear teaching of that word, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And God, once again, we need your help to do all of these things. We do not bring the uh, effort, the ability necessary to follow rightly on our own. And so we come to you helpless and dependent, wholly in need of your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, our country is in a season where we are thinking uh, pretty predominantly about what authority will look like. Uh, We are thinking through political authority. How much authority should a president have? How much authority should a speaker of the house have? How much authority should a particular governor have? Or how much authority should we invest in this thing we call the Supreme Court? Uh, Sometimes we ask, can anyone actually moderate a debate with any amount of authority uh, to get grown men to stop acting like children? And the answers aren't always clear. In fact, what we see as we look at the authority in our daily lives is that every instance of authority that we are familiar with has limits. Sometimes those limits are political and built into our founding documents. Sometimes uh, those limits are physical as we cannot stretch authority beyond our sphere of influence. Sometimes the limits of authority are simply the fact that no one wants to follow and no one wants to listen. But what we see in Matthew's gospel with absolute crystal clarity is that the authority of Jesus Christ is unlike any other authority. Uh, He's not just another earthly ruler. And this week we're going to move into the second set of miracles that demonstrate that authority of Christ. And again, we've seen his authority over sickness. We've seen his authority as he teaches like none of their scribes ever did. And now we see his authority over creation itself. And we're going to come into this passage where we're first encountered with a great storm. On that Sea of Galilee, we're brought face-to-face with a great storm. But the question is, how will his disciples respond to the trial? And what does this reveal about his person and his nature, uh, the nature of Jesus Christ? So let's open up God's Word and look at this together. And we're going to open in verse 23, and we're going to look at the calamity that comes upon this group, the particular uh, panicking, calamitous situation. Verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So he got into the boat, and maybe if you weren't here last week, or maybe it's been a very long week or two for you, and you kind of missed the context here, we go back to verse 18, and it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Remember, he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing, and he's casting out demons, and the picture is that this is a constant ministry. Uh, Day and then into the evenings, people are bringing him, uh, the sick, the lame, the blind, from far and wide, and it's an oppressive thing in some ways. And so he says, it is time for us to, to break from this for a period, and we're going to go over to the other side, and the other side meaning the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he saw the crowd... He's given orders to go, and that's when those two men approach him. So now we're back, and uh, those men have gone, presumably, and others have followed. And in verse 23, he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. In contrast to the hesitation that Matthew shows at the end of verse 23, or the end of verse 23 and 24, or I'm sorry, 
verse 20 and 21, those men that would follow but apparently didn't, now we have the willingness of a group who does follow him. Some of the disciples would have gotten into the boat with him. Some would have gotten into other boats. Mark's gospel tells us that there were several other boats that were following him. And immediately following after Christ, it's very interesting to note, puts them in danger rather than security. It is no accident that Matthew highlights what he does. Those two that avoided following him turned out to be the safe ones. And those that got in the boat with him wind up moving straight into danger. And in verse 24, Matthew brings us to the danger that's going to face them. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. I haven't been to the Sea of Galilee. I would love to go, uh, but it's pretty easy to look up the physical characteristics. It lies about 700 feet below sea level. It is a very low thing. So you have the Mediterranean Sea significantly higher than the Sea of Galilee, and the surrounding terrain means that storms can come on this relatively small body of water fairly quickly and fairly severely. And as they set out that night, the weather might have been perfectly calm, but a sudden storm has come up, and it is not a minor squall. It is described as a great storm. And now ordinarily, the Greek doesn't matter to you, nor should it. Your English translators are brilliant and faithful in how they translate God's word from the original languages. But this one's kind of cool. This is described as a seismos megas. And we kind of can get our minds around both of those words, particularly because of where we live. Seismos. seismograph that thing that measures the shaking that we're all too familiar with here in california and then megas we have mega in our english language that highlights the the breadth the scope the greatness of something and so what matthew says is there was a great shaking on the sea Uh, this isn't just a little spot of bad weather this is a significant storm and the size is such that it says the boat was being swamped by the waves These are not great ocean-going vessels. These are boats that are most likely primarily used for fishing, which means open tops and low sides so that you can get the nets over. And they are quickly filling up with water. And the water's already been to collect in the boat, other Gospels tell us. Now, the Sea of Galilee isn't enormous. It's about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. Uh, Small enough to have these significant weather events happen. Large enough to where if you're in the middle of it and you lose your boat... Things are going to go very badly very quickly. So their lives are very definitely in danger. And almost unimaginably, in the middle of this storm, in the middle of this panic, we see a scene of great calm. Calm in the middle of the panic. Look what Matthew writes at the end of verse 24. He says, but he, that is Jesus, was asleep. Jesus gives the command. He gets in the boat and somewhere between point A and Capernaum and point B where they're going on the other side, He falls fast asleep. And I think there are two reasons that he falls asleep. The first one should be pretty obvious, and that is that Jesus was tired. And that might seem like a very minor point, but it's fairly significant. Especially when you realize that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And from before time began, Jesus existed in honor and glory, in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, enthroned in the praises of angels, uh, existing in absolute holiness and majesty and perfection of power and glory. And then at some point in human history, 2,000 years ago, that infinite, holy, eternally majestic Son of God stepped into human history and took on flesh. He lowered himself and he became 
as one of us. And he didn't just put on the mask of a man. He didn't just put on a human costume and pretend. He took on our infirmities, our weaknesses. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be tired, to be physically exhausted. And this ministry of Jesus is presented as this pressing, constant thing that leads him to a place of physical exhaustion and exertion. What have we seen? He teaches the crowds. They go from town to town. They're pressing. And as he proclaims the kingdom and calls men to repent, as he he heals and as he casts out demons, there's just more and more work to do. And it's led him to the point where he is tired. It's where he can sleep and not only sleep on a boat, but sleep on a boat in the middle of the storm. But if you've ever been truly tired, you know that you need more than tired to be asleep, don't you? You also need a measure of calm and peace. Because there's been plenty of nights when I have been absolutely physically exhausted but I will lay there and I'll stare at the ceiling and I'll watch the hands on the clock or the minutes tick by because I simply cannot get my mind to shut off. Anxiety is the enemy of peace and certainly the enemy of rest, but not so for Christ. It's very interesting. The foxes have holes, the birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His ministry is one of exertion and exhaustion. It's one of constant opposition and constant questions and constant teaching and constantly bringing people along in their understanding. And if that is not a recipe for anxiety, I don't know what is. And yet Jesus sleeps peacefully on a boat in the middle of the storm. How can that be? Well, he's anxious for nothing because he has every understanding of who the Father is and that the Father is infinitely able to accomplish all that he's purposed. He's able to sleep peacefully because he knows what he has come to do. And the Son of Man did not come to die in the sea. He came to fulfill a very particular mission of redemption. And so he knows that this is not the time. So he sleeps and the storm comes and he sleeps and the waves toss and he sleeps and the water begins to come over the side. And in the middle of the raging storm, the Savior is the picture of calm in the middle of the chaos. But as Jesus sleeps, that storm only continues to grow. And as the storm grows, so too does the panic of his disciples. And at this point, they have come to the end of themselves and they come to him with a very particular cry. And now we have not at this point in Matthew's gospel been introduced to all 12 of what we would now call his disciples, that group that we specifically count as the 12. But we have been introduced to four of them. If you remember back earlier in Matthew, he'd introduced us to two sets of brothers, Peter James, Andrew, John, and they, he introduces us to those brothers, and if you remember, what were they all doing at the time? They were fishing. They were fishermen. It is what they did. And so at least a core group of his men, and presumably a significant number of the people around him, were very familiar not only with boats and with water, but with this particular place. This was not their first tour around the Sea of Galilee, and very likely, this is not their first storm, and yet they come to him in an absolute panic, a terror Look what they say in verse 25. They went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Those experienced fishermen have now come to the end of themselves and you know that things are bad when the fishermen come to the son of the carpenter for help in the middle of a storm. They are utterly at the end of themselves. They shake him out of their sleep and they say, Lord, we are perishing, save us. Uh, See, they assume that they need to inform Jesus about the severity of the situation that they find themselves in. And I want you to do something. I want you to turn with me a few pages over to Mark's gospel. Turn over to Mark chapter four. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us parallel accounts of this event. And and they all share the same narrative. They are all the same story. They are all uh, absolutely true. They simply give us different perspectives, some different uh, highlights of this. Luke's gospel, the disciples cry out, Master, Master, we are perishing. But in Mark chapter 4, he gives us a little bit of additional information that helps us understand what's at the heart of their cry here. 
In Mark 4, starting in verse 35, he picks up this narrative, leaving in the evening, and they leave the crowd, and they get in the boats. Now, look down to Mark 4, verse 38. It says, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And this is what happens as the disciples approach him. They woke him, and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Oh, see, now we begin to understand something of the heart behind their panic. See, because at the heart of this cry is not only Jesus, do you not know what we're going through? It's Jesus, do you even care what we're going through? And embedded in that are certainly echoes of what we see in that wilderness generation that came out of Egypt. They had seen the plagues. They had seen the Red Sea split. They had seen water come out of a rock. Uh, They had seen manna from heaven. They had seen a pillar of cloud and of fire. And still the heart of their questions was, is the Lord among us or not? God, do you even care? And if this is where you've led us, then maybe it's better to die in the wilderness. And it's so easy for us to absolutely tear apart that wilderness generation and to absolutely tear apart the disciples and say, you fools, how could you even ask him that? After all that you've seen, after all that you know, how could you even ask him that? And that is a legitimate question that Jesus himself will bring up. But sometimes, many times, I think, we we fail to see how much more we line up with the disciples and with that wilderness generation than we would like to admit. I mean, how often do I claim to know those same things? Ask me. I know that God is sovereign. Ask me, I'll take you to the passages. I can show you where it says that he cares for his children and those that he loves. And yet, how often I forget. See, I know that he has the power to either keep me out of the disaster or to help me walk obediently through it. And yet in the middle of the storm, I very, very quickly turn my eyes away from the Savior because sometimes at the first sign of adversity, at the first sign of foul weather, I am very, very quick to, in my own way and in my own language, cry out, Jesus Uh, Are you asleep in the midst of this? Jesus, if you were here, if you knew, if you cared, then why don't you do something about this? So in the middle of this great storm, we have the great calm of Christ, and we have the absolute panic of the disciples. And because most of us are pretty familiar with this narrative, we know what it gives way to. We know uh, that the great storm does give way to a great calm there on the Sea of Galilee. But what does Matthew intend for us to see and take note of in that calm? What did the disciples lack and what does Christ prove about himself? Go back to Matthew chapter 8. Let's pick up the story there. When we open verse 26, we now see that the Lord asks his disciples a very pointed question. Look at verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? They woke him up, they cried out, Lord, we're perishing. Embedded in that cry was, Lord, do you even care that we are perishing? And as he responds to them, he does so with a pointed and an even painful question. Why are you afraid? And our human side, our nature bristles at that question. Jesus, what do you mean, why am I afraid? It is the middle of the night, we are in the middle of a lake, we are in the middle of a storm, and things are not good. There is wind, there is waves, and this boat is not built to handle this. And if the boat goes down, there is very little hope for us to make it to any kind of safe haven. Jesus, how could you even ask, why are we afraid? But in asking the question, he also pinpoints the reason that they're afraid. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? See, the problem was not the storm. The problem was not the waves, the wind, or the darkness. The problem was their faith. Their faith was small. See, they had seen what Jesus was able to do. 
They had heard him teach and teach like no one else. They had seen him uh, heal the leper. They had seen him heal the centurion's servant. They had seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law with a touch and with a word. They had seen him exercise absolute power and authority over all of these things, over paralysis, fever, leprosy, demons. Their problem was not a lack of information. Their problem was not that they just didn't have enough data points to make a good decision. Their problem was their lack of faith. When the storm came, it completely overshadowed what they knew about the one that they got in the boat to follow in the first place. Jesus had said, come and follow after me, and they had gone. And they knew that he was going over to the other side of the sea. And when he said, come and follow me, we're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. When he said that, uh, it didn't seem like a very dangerous proposition. When they set out in the boats, it didn't seem like a very dangerous proposition. And I wonder if their response would have been the same if they were able to see the storm clouds gathering on the horizon. I wonder if their response to follow would have been the same, would have been as eager if they knew uh, what kind of night they were in for there on the water. And I can't help but think about us. Would we follow? Would we follow if we knew the storms that he was going to bring into our life? Would we follow if we knew the troubles and the trials that we were in store for simply by being called disciples of Christ? And here's the thing, we do know to some degree, don't we? I mean, hasn't he said the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life? Didn't he say to take up your cross and follow me? Didn't he say that the world hates me? Surely it will hate you. Didn't we see even last week that the call to follow after Christ is a costly and an urgent call? So often, what do we do? We see the storm and we forget the Savior. Lord, do you know? Lord, do you care? And every time, whether it's me or you or anyone, every time that is our response to our trials, we are exhibiting a little faith, a small faith, a weak and immature faith. And that's a faith that needs to be driven into the sea and tested, quite frankly. Because that's the kind of faith that needs an understanding, a better, a greater understanding of the object of its faith. It's a faith that needs to be exercised and purified and tested and made stronger. Because what do I need to remember in those times? I need to remember exactly who it is that I claim to be following. And that's what the disciples needed in that moment as well. They needed to remember who it was that they got in the boat to follow and Jesus immediately shows them why they didn't need to be afraid. He proves, once again, this authority that he has. Look at the rest of verse 26. It says, Then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. We are in the middle of these demonstrations over and over and over that deal with the authority of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus, the absolutely authoritative teacher. This is Jesus as he demonstrates his authority over disease and paralysis and over uh, fevers. Next week we'll see this is Jesus who has authority even over the spiritual realm as he casts out demons. And now he shows that his authority extends over the created order itsp- itself. He speaks with a word and he heals. He speaks and with a word, he brings calm where there was a storm. And once again, the words are really interesting. Uh, Remember, mega shaking. This was a big shaking. And now Matthew uses that same word and now there is a mega, a great calm. If you've ever been in the middle of a storm, you know that storms don't simply evaporate. We were on a missions trip to Antigua one year and uh, a hurricane actually blew in while we were there. And some of us were brilliant or foolish enough to go out and swim in the waves at the onset of this hurricane until we were caught. And 
rightly disciplined. Um, but <laughs> I remember that even after the hurricane passed, after those few hours, it took a while for the pounding of the waves to stop, for those winds to die completely down. If you've ever been in a, something as simple as a pool and you were seeing how big you could make the waves in the pool, even after everybody's still, you can still ride those waves as they lap against the sides of the pool for several minutes. This isn't that. Jesus stands up and he says, stop. Mark says, peace, be still to the waves. And in a moment, it's over and the sea is like glass. It is a great calm. (laughs) And we see that that great calm is just as unsettling to the disciples as the waves were a moment ago, but we'll get there in a minute. But I want to take a look really quickly at another word that Matthew uses here. It says that he got up, he stands up and he rebukes the winds and the sea. And it's so interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one that records this, say that Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves. Well, the rebuke is a strong correction. Uh, Why rebuke a natural element? Uh, Why correct a natural element? When I stub my toe, I don't rebuke the door jam. It makes no sense. Uh, Why is Jesus rebuking a part of the physical creation here? Well, I think the answer is tied pretty closely to why he does those other things that he does. Why does he heal? Why does he cast out demons? Why does he restore sight to the blind? And why does he restore hearing to the deaf? Well, because what does he come to proclaim? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here, and with him comes the power of his kingdom. And this king has come to proclaim a kingdom in which there is no more curse. In fact, this king has come to heal our sicknesses and our diseases, as Matthew just pointed out a couple of weeks ago. He comes to bear away those elements of the curse. Ultimately, he comes to die so that the curse might be removed from his people so that sin can be fully and finally dealt with. And because we know that sin is the root cause of sickness and pain and death and weakness and infirmity, sin sits at the root of all of that. As he shows that he is able to remove the effects of the curse, it highlights his ability to deal with the heart of the curse as well. This falls in very much the same vein. If you were to look toward the end of Revelation and you look at this new heaven and new earth, this restored creation that he brings in, it's fascinating. It says there's no more sea there. Why? Because there's something inherently sinful about water? Of course not. He created it. And in fact, water plays an important part in the new heavens and the new earth and that restored creation as you read through the rest of what John wrote. The sea was a place of terror and unknown. It was a place of storms and waves and potential shipwreck and calamity and disaster. And there is no place for any of that in the new heavens and the new earth. And here on the middle of the Sea of Galilee, that night, so many years ago, you have a microcosm of a sinful impact on the world. See, all of creation groans under the weight of sin, Paul says in Romans 8. And part of that groaning is earthquakes and storms and tornadoes and hurricanes. It's famine and disaster and it's death. And what is the king coming to demonstrate? That not only can he repeal the effects of the fall in the men that he calls to himself, but he is able to repeal the effects of the fall in the created order itself. That this king has authority over the lives of his people and over the very creation that they will inhabit. And once again, this points us forward to the time when in the fullness of the kingdom, even the natural elements that plague us now, that are threats now, won't be when he comes. What's the response of the disciples? As they stand in the presence of that kind of authority, well, we find that it brings a very different kind of storm of its own. Where Jesus was a picture of calm in the middle of panic, now we see uh, that the disciples managed to drum up panic in the middle of the calm. Look at verse 27. 
And the men marveled. They're amazed. They're astonished. Luke says that they were afraid. Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 4 says they were filled with great fear. They thought they were afraid of the storm. Now they are brought into the presence of someone who fills them with an entirely different kind of fear. And what do they say? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And that is a critical question. What kind of man is this that is standing in their midst? See, as they try to evaluate who and what this Jesus is, there's no category in their mind for him. They cannot classify him. There's nothing in their understanding. There's nothing in their experience that allows them to rightly and wholly identify what kind of person can exercise this kind of authority over that kind of a storm. Well, what is Matthew trying to highlight? Exactly that. That this Jesus is like no other. See, there has been no other Christ that could have that kind of genealogy. There has been no other one who could be called the son of Abraham and the son of David and the prophetic fulfillment like this one. There's no other one that could be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is absolutely unlike any other and his identity is revealed by what he does because what do we know about someone who can speak and calm the storms and the waves? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that that is a characteristic of the power of God himself. In Job 26, verse 11, Job says, The pillars of heaven tremble, and they are astounded at his rebuke. And by his power, he stills the sea. Psalm 65, 7, he stills the roaring seas and the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Psalm 89, verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the seas, and when its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 106, beginning in 25, He commanded and raised the stormy winds, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, and men's courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Why is it that the wind and the waves and the sea obey God? Well, Psalm 95 gives us the reason. Psalm 95.5 says the sea is his, for he made it. See, it has to listen to him because he's the one that called it into existence in the first place. And now what does the New Testament tell us about this Jesus? Matthew presents him as the one who stands in the middle of the storm and with a word brings perfect calm and perfect peace where there was a raging storm only moments before. In other words, he demonstrates the very power of God. And of course he does these things. Doesn't John chapter 1, verse 3 say that all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that has been made? That includes these raging waters. Colossians 1.16 says that by him, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and that all things were not only created through him, but that all things were created for him. And if this Galilean sea was made through him and was made for him, then of course it has to respond to the authority of his word. Doesn't Hebrews 1 tell us that he is the heir of all things, that he is the exact image, imprint of the nature of God? Doesn't it tell us that through whom he created the world, doesn't it tell us that by the power of his word, he upholds all of creation. And if he upholds his creation, then of course the very elements of that creation have to respond to his rebuke. What reality was it that confronted the disciples in that boat that brought them to terror? 
What reality confronts us some 2,000 years later as we read this account and study it out of Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel? It's the very same reality that this Jesus is not like any other man that you can simply put into your human classifications. This one is like no other. He is unlike anyone in power. He is unlike anyone in authority. This is different. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is the king. And he alone has absolute authority over the cosmos that he created and that he rules with divine and absolutely unchallenged sovereign authority. That is who Matthew is pointing to. I feel like I need to remind you, and I know that I need to remind me why this matters. And I can illustrate it easily enough just by taking you through a couple of things in our week. Nice of God, gracious of God, to give examples where I need them. So earlier this week, Abby has cross-country practice, and then she has small groups, and she's fine. And then as soon as she gets home from small groups, she starts coughing. Not a COVID cough, more like an asthma-type cough, and it gets to the point where she can barely breathe. So Brandy drives her into the ER, and she's there until about 2 a.m., uh, Earlier in this week, I had to do my favorite thing, which is go to the doctor, and I had to get shots, uh, which is by far the most minor thing, but it was traumatic for me, and you need to know that. On Wednesday, Brandy goes in for her physical, and the doctors see something they don't really like, and so they send her for follow-up tests on Thursday, and they do two more tests, and they see more stuff that they don't like. So Brandy has a biopsy scheduled for next Wednesday, and there's some unknowns. On Thursday we had what has to be one of the worst communication days on record because sometimes marriage happens that way. And it wasn't that anyone did anything malicious, it was just that no matter how hard we tried, or maybe because we didn't try very hard, we just couldn't seem to get on the same page all day. Friday afternoon, out of nowhere, we were supposed to go hang out with friends from church here. Distance. Disclaimers. And I got lightheaded and dizzy like I haven't felt in years, and I had to lay down and just wait for it to pass. It was very odd. Yesterday, as I'm trying to wrap up my sermon, our printer that's been out of warranty for about three weeks stops working. I have one of those nights where I lay and I stare at the ceiling. And then very early this morning, Caleb comes in with an ear infection that seems to have flared back up. And I am extending that to you, not for pity. In fact, if you come up to me after the service and say, I am so sorry you had that kind of a week, I will make unkind faces at you under my mask. (laughs) That is not the point. Because quite frankly, we have all had one of those weeks. And if you haven't, you will. And to be perfectly honest with you, some of you had a week that made my week look very, very easy. And I understand that. Do you understand why this story matters? Do you understand how critical it is to know who you follow before you get in the boat? Because I'm going to freely admit to you that at some points this week, my first reaction was, Lord, I'm awake. Are you? Uh, Lord, I know intellectually that you're in this, but I can't see what you're doing in the middle of it. How do you get past that? How do I get past that? By knowing who he is and knowing what he's promised. See, he called me to follow him and I said, all right, I'll follow you wherever you lead. And sometimes following after Jesus puts me on straight paths by still waters. 
And sometimes following after Jesus puts you in the middle of a storm or in the valley of the shadow of death. The shepherd doesn't change. See, because he knows and he cares. And because he knows, it means that I am there for a very specific purpose. And because he cares, it means that I am there for his glory and ultimately for my good. Uh, because he knows and because he is sovereign and because he loves me, uh, whether I am in the stillness or the storm, I can understand and have confidence in the fact that there is no better place for me to be. See, there's no other place where I would learn exactly what I have to learn in that moment. There's no other place where I would be called to be obedient in the same way that I am in that moment. There's no other place where God's glory would be brought to bear in my life in the same way that it would be in that exact moment. And see, so the question is not, are you there? The question is, because you are there, what would you have me do? How have you called me to honor you, to worship you, to glorify you, and to obey you in this moment? And I'm not standing here telling you that I got it right every time this week or that I get it right all the time. But you need to understand that I can stand here with absolute confidence and tell you that this week was a gracious gift of God. Every moment of every day in his sovereignty and in his goodness was exactly what I needed. If that is the case, how could I do anything but praise Him in each and every one of those moments? How often I am slow to remember that. And I can tell you that that's true because what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.6 is true. It says, In this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, my faith needed to be tested. There were some things in my life that needed to be burned away this week, and there were some things in my life that needed to be strengthened this week. And anything that remained only to the praise of His glory is also for my eternal good. Three things for us to think about as we go. First of all, we need to think through obedience and security. We have to understand that obedience does not mandate security. In this narrative, who missed the storm? Anybody that didn't get on the boat and follow him? Relatively safe on the land. Who was brought immediately into danger? It's the ones who were at least outwardly obedient. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because what do we see at the end of chapter 7? The one who hears and obeys is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And remember, building on the right foundation doesn't mean you dodge the storm. It simply means that you endure in the midst of the storm. Sometimes a reminder that obedience brings us into the path of suffering. And if God calls us to that, then not only will we stand and remain, but our faith will be made stronger and increase because of it. In other words, we'll be more like our Savior because of the trial. And we hear this so often, and we see it uh, spit out there on Facebook every so often, that, uh, you know, take heart, God won't bring you into something that's more than you can handle. That is theological garbage. God will routinely bring you to the face of things that you have no ability to comprehend, let alone handle on your own. God, in fact, promises to bring you into significantly more than you can handle. He says he will not give you a temptation beyond what you're able to bear without providing a means of escape. He's not going to lead you into sin. He's not going to lead you into failure or falling. 
but he will routinely bring us to the place where everything that we have that brings us security and peace is stripped away until we find those things only in him. And it is a good and gracious thing when he does that. Second, what's the source of peace? Where does peace come from? It's not the absence of trial or testing. If it was, then we would live as hermits and we would avoid the world and the conflict and the trials and everything that goes with it and we would be blessed for it, but that's not what we're called to. No, peace comes from knowing the truth about who God is and what he's problem what he's promised because if he is sovereign then the storm is under his control and if he loves his children then the storm is not designed for their destruction so we're actually free to face pain and suffering and even death without fear we're free to respond in faith faith that knows that he cares and that he's in control faith that because those things are true there's a way for me to be obedient even in the midst of those things And faith that understands in obedience, there's great blessing, not the blessing of being free from trials or free from storms, but the blessing that knows that I'm being refined and purified and made more fit to be in the presence of my Savior for all eternity. And that leads us finally to the biggest question. We have to respond to that question that the disciples ask, what kind of man is this? Later on in Matthew, we'll see it framed this way. Who do you say that the Christ is? The point of this passage is not with Jesus in the boat you can weather the storms of life, although I've certainly heard it preached that way. That's not the point. The point of this passage is to bring us face to face with the person and the nature of Jesus Christ, to be utterly and clearly confronted with his absolute otherness. This is Jesus. This is the King of Kings. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus who stills the waves with a word. This is Jesus who heals with a word. This is Jesus who's going to be lifted up to die for the sins of his people, who will bear the holy wrath of God against sin. This is Jesus raised to power and glory and honor. This is Jesus who before one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the only question that truly matters is what do you do with this Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we have been shown who you are and there's no neutral response to that. We will either submit to the king or we will carry on as our own king and our own authority. Lord, my authority is so small, so limited, so, so paling in comparison to your majesty. Lord, because of your greatness... May it bring about a great trust in us, a great calm in the midst of life's storms. Not because you've promised to bring us through unscathed, but because you've promised to bring us through in a way that makes us more like you. And Lord, should you call us to difficulty, you've called us to blessing. Should you call us to peace and safety, you've called us to blessing. Should you call us to anything, you've called us to obedience. And so, God, may we proclaim your name as one who is good and faithful and true, powerful, holy and righteous, loving, caring, kind and compassionate in every moment of every one of our days. And God, we need your help to do that. Help us to be a people at peace in a sick and stormy world. Thank you for being the Savior who came to die for us, who repeals the curse and who promises a coming kingdom. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.